The following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. Okay, good evening everyone. I uh, wanted to share with you something about a movement that I was reminded of recently. And uh, it's called... Now, you know... You know uh, some of the common kind of uh, cults or other movements out there, Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons. Um, some the Seventh-day Adventists would put in a cult category. Others would put them as kind of evangelical or somewhere in between. Uh, another movement that you might not have heard of, uh, which I had heard of before, but I didn't really pay much attention to it, um, is the Hebrew Roots Movement. Hebrew Roots or Jewish Roots Movement or the Hebrew Roots Awakening. Those are all the same thing. This is different than... Uh, I, didn't, I didn't even actually think about this until just now, so uh, don't hold me to some long academic uh, exercise on the identification of this next group. But there is also a group of people who call themselves Black Hebrews. And I'm not too much familiar with them, although we ran into one at the art fair. Who was there at the art fair with me that one day? Somebody was. Anyway, we talked to a gentleman who uh, professed to believe in that system of, of doctrine. But I haven't prepared anything on that. And I really don't know anything about that group. But I just say, throw that out there to kind of distinguish it from what we're talking about tonight because it does. this has the name Hebrew in it. The Hebrew Roots Movement is just what I'll call it. H-R-M. For short, so I had heard about this before, but was not familiar with it too much. Uh, then I came up in conversation recently, and then I asked a pastor friend if he had anything written up on it. You know, I was looking for something quick to uh, get me up to speed on this, and he said, "Unfortunately, no." So you know what happens when that occurs? <laughs> then you have to work on it yourself. So that's what I have done to start working on. So I, I figured I'd better. Dig in a little bit and, uh, and take a look at this. So the basic idea of the Hebrew Roots movement is that the church has lost its way and must return to the Jewish or Hebrew roots of its faith in the first century. So you can imagine there's this idealized picture of what the Christian church was like, you know, pristine, just, just began in the first century. And uh, we've kind of strayed away from that and all the denominations and the Reformation and the Catholic Church and all the heresies and everything. So we've got to kind of get back to the Bible is the idea, is their idea. Get back to that Jewish and Hebrew practice of the faith. So the lifestyle of the first century Jew is to be practiced by believers because they were the first Christians, the, the, the Hebrew Christians. And so therefore... Uh, that even is to be imposed, some believe, on all Christians, both Gentiles and Jews. Okay, So if it doesn't make sense to you yet, don't worry. Um, it might not ever, in a, in a sense, make, make sense to you. But um, just hang on as we discuss this. This is really not a, a lesson where I'm going to go to one passage and, and exegete it for you. I'm trying to learn about this movement and have you learn along with me. So this is a work in progress. It's not done yet. So based on what I've just said, and, and before really digging into the study of the Hebrew Roots movement, I wondered 
if the, the movement is really a variation on what's called replacement theology, that the, the church has replaced Israel or become the new Israel or needs to behave like Israel, or perhaps I wondered to myself, and I haven't, I'm not making these as conclusions right now, I'm just saying I wondered, just kind of giving you the process of my thinking as I wondered about this. I wondered also if it's a modern version of the circumcision faction in the New Testament. Remember what that movement said among the Jewish people? Acts chapter what? What chapter number? Anybody? Not 13. It's 15. In Acts chapter 15, you have the Jerusalem Council. Acts 13 is... Paul uh, goes out on the first missionary journey. 14, first missionary journey. Returns from that, reports to Antioch. There's a controversy that brews, um, really begins to rage, and that is you know, people come from Jerusalem saying you must be circumcised and uh, keep the law of Moses. And they say that again in Acts 15, 1 through 5. You must be circumcised and, and they must, the Gentiles must be uh, told to not only be circumcised but keep the law of Moses. So I wondered if this was a variation of that teaching, or I'm sorry, if it is a modern variation of that circumcision teaching. Now, let me just pause. When I say circumcision or the circumcision, if you look that phrase up in the Bible, you'll see that it's used a number of ways in a number of different passages. In Romans 4 and 15, and also in Colossians 4.11, it's used in a good or neutral way to refer to Jewish people generally. They're the circumcision. Paul says uh, in the end of Colossians 4.11 of certain people who were his helpers in ministry, these only are the, uh, my helpers of the circumcision. Meaning, these are my Jewish Christian buddies you know, that are helping me in the ministry. Uh, in Colossians 2.11, it talks about the circumcision made without hands. What is that? The circumcision of the heart made without hands means it's, a, means it's a spiritual operation that's done on our hearts to cut away the heart of stone and put in us a heart of what? Soft, a soft heart of flesh, uh, not, a, not, a, not a hardened sclerosist heart. Right, uh, a hardened heart, but a soft heart. So sometimes it's used that way. And then in a couple of passages, it refers to the Judaizing party, the faction of the circumcision in Galatians and Titus. Now the word the circumcision is not used, or the phrase rather, is not used in Acts 15. In Acts 15, the idea is there. We just alluded to that just a few moments ago. So, is it the circumcision party? Well, well, we'll have to see about that. But I also caution myself at the same time that there is something of value in just the very idea that of the Hebrew Roots movement calling us back to the beginning where we came from. And that is that Jesus said in John chapter 4, verse 22, salvation is of the Jews. So, our faith does have Hebrew roots, but that's not the real, that's not all that Hebrew roots awakening or Hebrew roots movement means. Christianity is an outgrowth of the Jewish faith. It is a fulfillment of the Jewish faith. Or it, 
and, and I got myself into, into hot water one time when I said this, Christianity completes the Jewish faith. Some Jewish people hate that idea. You know, you're aware of that, brother? Yeah, it completes the Jewish faith. And I don't mean to be offensive when I say that. I, I'm, I'm, I'm alluding to the fact that their own scriptures in the Hebrew Bible demand that something must come beyond the end of where they're at now. Something more must come. A servant who gives himself as an offering for sin. Uh, what else do they need? They need a priest after the order of Melchizedek who, who hasn't come according to their thinking yet. They need a new kingdom. Amos 9.11 says the tabernacle of David will be raised up. That hasn't happened. They need a new covenant. Jeremiah 31, God says, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. There are just four items right off the top of our heads that the Old Testament Scriptures, as we call them, promise need to be fulfilled. And what we're saying is those and many more are found in, in Christ as their fulfillment. Make sense? So, I'm not trying to be offensive. I'm trying to say that the Christian faith grows organically out of the Jewish faith in the Hebrew Bible and, the, and that Christianity has a definite Jewish flavor to it. Very much so, doesn't it? That's why we appreciate the Jewish people, the Jewish nation, even as it exists today. We have a special spot in our hearts for those, the apple of God's eye, as it were, even though they are now in unbelief. We have that spirit of the Apostle Paul, that spirit which said, I wish myself that I could be a curse, that spirit that says, I, I bear witness, my soul, basically crying out, that God would save the Jews by some means. He rejoices in Romans 11 that that will be the case, but in the meanwhile, he's concerned for their souls and so should we be. But this is just connects us back to our, our Hebrew roots. And if you don't know about the, um, you know, the Old Testament promises and the covenants and, the, and all that, then you're really going to be lost as to what the real significance, the full significance of Christianity is. But again... I, I use that those two words Hebrew roots or Jewish you know uh, considerations in our history advisedly because we don't hold to the Hebrew roots movement. So what are key ideas and practices of the Hebrew roots movement? I list uh, oh half a dozen or more of them here. Number one, they elevate the law of Moses or the Torah. Elevate the law of Moses. So you must practice the law. You must practice the law. Secondly, a kosher diet is usually required as is keeping Sabbath on Saturday from Friday night to Saturday evening and also keeping the Jewish feasts. Okay, So really, they're taking the Christian believer, Gentile or Jew, but often many Gentiles in this movement, taking them back to the Jewish roots or Hebrew roots of, of the Bible and, and imposing upon them these requirements. Most of them elevate other Hebrew traditions even using extra-biblical teaching from the rabbis to instruct them or to see how the Bible was applied. Some elevate those extra-biblical writings to a, a very high place. Some 
Now, this is why the, the, the movement is not like, you know, everybody believes the exact same list of things, but these are things that characterize the movement from the research in several documents that I found. Some changed their personal names to Hebrew names. So I might be, um, I don't know, Matt, Mattathias or something like that, or I might be, uh, you know, uh, uh, go back to the Hebrew for. Um, the, the word for gift, like uh, in Hebrew, in Greek, Matthew, a gift or something like that. Well, it could be Nathaniel in the Greek. So there's a change sometimes of, the, of their personal names or a name they use. Uh, they, they teach that Christ came to clarify that Jewish oral law was not of divine origin. He did not come to establish a new religion. They reflect heavily on Matthew uh, 5.17 in this regard. When he said, what did, he, what did Jesus say in Matthew 5.17? Did he come to abolish the law? No, he didn't come to abolish the law. Did he come to demand that we exercise the law? No, it says he came to fulfill the law. So that whole body of Torah, uh, Nevi'im, the prophets, and the Ketuvim, the writings, all of that, he came to fulfill that. Not to necessarily... Uh, Continue it down to the present day, all of it. Um, some of them, some of the Hebrew Roots Movement adherents use the word, the name of God, the personal name of God from the Old Testament, Yahweh. And they just, they just use it you know, very much uh, without concern. Um, and some Bibles have been reprinted for that. Uh, and, and that is the name of God, they say. So why do we not pronounce the name of God? Well, the, the name of God is not pronounced by Jews out of perhaps superstitious reverence or concern. but uh, or, or some others would go the other way and they would say, well, we can't write the word God, G-O-D. Perhaps you're aware that they will write G-D as if it makes any difference. It doesn't really make any difference. So it becomes a superstition in effect. Um, if, if the word Yahweh is used freely uh, in the Scriptures, uh, certainly the word God is used freely in the Scriptures. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, Elohim. Uh, often the uh, Hebrew Roots Movement adherent will use the name of Jesus from Hebrew, Yeshua, Yeshua. Some teach that the New Testament was originally written in Hebrew. Now, you might not know that one way or the other, but it appears that the Hebrew or the New Testament was written in Greek, not in Hebrew. So there's kind of a special pleadings that are that are made to to try to say, well, it had to be written in Hebrew because of the Hebrew roots of the Christian faith, and and Jesus and the disciples would, would have used Hebrew. Well, they may not have used Hebrew very much. They may have used Greek and Aramaic more than they used. Hebrew, as it turns out, historically we, we can uh, ascertain that to be the case. But uh, we, we don't believe that our New Testaments are translations of one language into another. They were, they were written in Greek to begin with. So that's uh, just a little response to that. The Hebrew Roots Movement is critical of Christian, Christian traditions like Christmas. They would say that Christmas is a uh, holiday brought over from paganism into our practice. Now, this ought to sound somewhat familiar to you from some other things that you've learned over the years. 
uh, and we'll say why that is in just a moment. Um, some, not all, just make sure that you understand the, propor- the uh, proportion in which I'm speaking. Some of these folks in the Hebrew Roots movement deny the Trinity and deny the deity of Christ. Not all. Please don't, don't take that away from this. But some do. There's a question mark there. The idea of God in the flesh is an offense to some of those in the Hebrew Roots movement. Sin is defined as... Well, what does 1 John 3 verse 4 define sin as? Remember what that passage says? 1 John 3 and verse number 4. 1 John... What's that? Okay, that's right. It's 1 John 3, 4, which says that sin is lawlessness. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. So the Hebrew Roots Movement believer would say that sin, John here defines it as breaking the Torah. Any problem with that? Is this... Referring to the Torah here? It doesn't seem so for those of us that have been uh, careful to expose or exposit the Word of God in terms of the New Testament usage of the word law. Uh, it's not the law of Moses. It's mixing up. It's misapplying the term law, which refers to the law of Christ, to refer to the law of Moses. We're, by First John, we're way beyond the ending of the of the operation of the law of Moses. That's done and gone. It was ready to vanish away and it certainly was. And then um, they would use Numbers 15, 16. Just go there for a second. Numbers 15 and verse number 16. You might remember this verse once we read it again. They emphasize this verse. One law and one custom shall be for you and for the stranger who dwells with you. One law and one custom for you and the stranger who dwells with you. So they use this to say that one law has to apply to the Jews, has to apply to the Gentiles, and that has to apply forever after that. Okay. So as a Christian pastor... When I read these things and have coalesced them from several sources, I become very concerned because this indicates a misunderstanding of Scripture in a number of different areas. So actually I gave you six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, a dozen. I said half a dozen, I meant a dozen huh? um, of these issues. Okay? Now, what about, where, where does this, what are, what are connections to this uh, Movement. Well, it goes back almost a hundred years to, well, maybe even longer than that. But one is the Sabbath emphasis seems to be influenced by Seventh day Adventism. You're familiar with Seventh day Adventism. The Seventh day is Saturday. And uh, and Seventh day Adventists believe you've got to worship on Saturday, so their church services are on Saturdays. And uh, the law is important to them. Some of the very same things we've been looking at here. Another related movement was called the Sacred Name Movement, SNM, the Sacred Name Movement, and that's all I'm going to say about that. I did not look that up. Uh, I kind of already know what it is intuitively, but I'll just leave it at that. 
there's also a Messianic Jewish influence. How many of you have heard of the Messianic Jewish movement, a Messianic Congregational Judaism? So Messianic Jews are those who believe in the Messiah. They are mainly Jewish ethnicity and are concerned about the cultural practice of Judaism, that is of Jewish culture. Uh, Gentiles can participate. Often the movement is, is dispensational. Uh, these The variations of Messianic Judaism, not always, but some, uh, often. Um, so it's not the same as the Hebrew Roots Movement. It, the, the Hebrew Roots Movement is largely made up of Gentiles. Again, it's not exclusive. Uh, both groups must uh, say or suggest that the Law of Moses must be followed for sanctification. We had a close connection with some Messianic Congregational Jewish believers some years ago and I talked to one of them and they said flat out, the law is required for sanctification. The law is required for sanctification. Some practically consider the law necessary for salvation. Some, not all, Hebrew Roots Movement advocates. Hebrew Roots Movement is different than the Messianic Jewish movement in that it is not dispensational. It's in fact anti-dispensational. And it's similar to covenant theology. Covenant theology, one of the marks of that is that it says that believers in Jesus are or have become the new Israel. Or Jesus is the new Israel and the church is in Him, so effectively the church is the new Israel. Okay, We don't teach that whatsoever at all, not even close. Um, But that's what they believe. Finally, uh, I think finally for tonight, the last connection and and the most influential is called the Worldwide Church of God. The Worldwide Church of God. I don't have the dates on this. You can look this up uh, on on, uh, Wikipedia or your favorite uh, online sources. But the Worldwide Church of God is the major influence on the Hebrew Roots movement through the teachings of its founder, Herbert W. Armstrong. So He's the big name. Herbert W. Armstrong. He had such beliefs like these. Forbidding medical intervention. Requiring three tithes, which in a sense would be biblical. Uh, He believed that the lost tribes of Israel ended up in Britain, the U.S. and several other European countries. He denied the Trinity. The movement was charged with work salvation, right or wrong. And uh, another name you might know, Walter Martin, who's not associated with it, but wrote about it in The Kingdom of the Cults. Remember that book, The Kingdom of the Cults? Walter Martin wrote that early on, and then I think it was taken over by Hank Hanegraaff, uh, who wrote later editions of that book, I believe. But uh, the kingdom of the cults in there, he said that Armstrong borrowed from Seventh-day Adventism, Jehovah's Witnesses, and Mormon theology. He just put it like that. That's his, that's his argument. I'm not going to evaluate that. I'm just putting it out there. Now, after the death of the founder, Herbert Armstrong, the church changed its doctrine to match the more evangelical mainstream. So interestingly, what happened was, and this was in the... 80s, I want to say from my recollection, maybe mid-late 80s. Um, Actually, Mr. Armstrong had predicted the possible end of the world in 1975, and that didn't work out. But um, along in the 1970s and and around that time, a number of splinter groups formed. And out of those, you have some of the origins of the Hebrew Roots Movement today. 
um, churches uh, split away, and the church itself recognized after his passing that their doctrine was not correct. And so they adapted and adjusted their doctrine and became more mainline evangelical. But the splinter groups had splintered off and they still hold, held some of these beliefs that they did uh, before. So today the Hebrew Roots Movement is claimed by some to be a grassroots movement without a church superstructure. Now I'm not a historian of the movement, so don't you know um, expect me to write a book on this thing or anything like that. But I would say there's there's probably some more kind of tentacles from this early worldwide Church of God in it than they might want to admit because these ideas you know propagate like wildfire even in grassroots movements that are supposed to be kind of reinventions of the thing. But in any case, uh, you can look that up if you're more interested in, in looking into it. So you have those connections, Seventh-day Adventism, uh, drawing perhaps from Jehovah's Witness and uh, Mormon theology and this, the theology of this Mr. Armstrong. I always get jumpy, uh, to use a word uh, from one of my mentors, Dr. McCune. I always get jumpy when uh, I, I see like, one person who is the uh, proponent of a movement, you know, like Ellen White or uh, Charles Taze Russell or uh, here Herbert Armstrong, uh, Joseph Smith, you know, these guys who uh, begin these movements. And you've, and plus, when you see heretical beliefs that they hold, you know that out of a bad root, it's. Uh, pretty much impossible for good fruit to come, right? Unless there's a cutting off and the church recognizes their doctrine is bad and they change it to what's correct. That's a movement of God. That's to be thank, you know, thankful for. But when you've got that bad of a root, you've got a real problem. So, and I'm not trying to make a pun there at all, okay? Uh, so the Hebrew roots movement. So, we're out of time for this evening, but what we'll do next time is we're going to look at some of the theological issues and responses to them, um, and then we'll look at some practical issues as well. And I've got some references, uh, sources, if you want to look at those sometime, um, but that's what, that's what our plan is. So, tonight, remember, we kind of define what the movement is, look at the key ideas and practices, and then we looked at some of its historical connections to help us Get, kind of get located as to where it came from. Next time, theological and practical issues. Okay, So, needless to say, I, well, I, I hope needless to say, I felt it necessary for myself to get up to speed on this issue, but also as a way to alert you and, uh, as the Apostle Paul said in Romans 16, to note those who cause doctrinal divisions among you and avoid them. So, we want to avoid it and, and not be kind of captivated by the mystique or the romance of going back to the way it was. You know, like, like the early church was the Garden of Eden and uh, we've lost all of that early innocence and we need to get back to that somehow by, by forcing ourselves into Jewish practices and cultural things and festivals and, and keeping the law and all those sorts of things. Not the case at all. We haven't missed anything in our any, anything major I'll say in our understanding of scripture and our practice of course we can become more uh, like Christ and more sanctified but um, we don't have to worry like oh man we really missed the boat we need to go back and start from scratch from the beginning 
So I encourage you about that this evening. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You that You have given us the clear words of testimony in the Scripture that help us to avoid being tossed about by a new wind of doctrine that might blow our way. And although this is not a new wind, it's been going on for some decades now, it is held by two or 300,000 people or more now and perhaps growing. And I pray, God, that You would protect us from it and also those who have begun to be enamored with its doctrines, that they will realize some of the flaws of it and come out from it. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay. Well, that's a uh, Theology uh, 101 class there. I hope it's helpful to you. It's certainly practical for us to have some idea about the Hebrew Roots movement. Uh, may God bless you tonight and uh, drive safely home. Stay warm, safe, healthy, and uh, whatever happens, the Lord will be with you. Amen. Good night.